Hello, hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, you guys. I hope you all are having a great week so far. I hope everything's going good. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. My name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started today, I just wanted to go ahead and ask you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you have a moment, I would love for you to review the podcast if you can. I love going back and reading your guys' suggestions on how to make the podcast a more enjoyable experience for you. So if you have a moment of your time to do that, I would very much appreciate it. So we have a crazy one today, you guys. Today we are talking about the murder of of Michael Shaver. And I was just going through this case is so twisted and I'm sure that you guys will feel the same. But before we get into it, I want to go ahead and look back on some of the theories that you guys had for last week's case. As you remember, if you listened to it, we talked about Veronica Anderson. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, you can do one of two things. You can pause this and go back and listen to it and then come back to this episode, or you can skip through this part and just get straight into the case and catch that last week's episode later if you want to. Now, I think this case got more write-ins than any case that we've ever covered here, meaning that you guys were very vocal on your opinions on this case. You were emailing me a bunch on this case, which I really appreciate. If you aren't aware, you can always email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. You guys can write in your theories on cases we have covered. You can write in comments, questions, suggestions, and new case requests as well. So we are going to walk through some of the theories that you guys had on the Veronica Anderson case, and then we will move on into today's episode. So the first theory comes from someone who says, quote, hi, okay, so I have a small theory about why Veronica cleaned out her trunk that night. It could be possible that she got a phone call from her so-called lover saying that he left his wife and was hoping he could stay with her. He could have told her he had a suitcase or some belongings with him and can she come and get him. Then when she got there, it could have been possible that her lover and the jealous wife were there and they both ganged up on her and killed her. That would explain the brutality of the murder also could explain why she told the neighbor her brother called so when she would get back to pick up her son, there would be a male companion with her, end quote. Now, when I read this theory, which mind you, some of you said this in the YouTube video version of this case that I did as well, you guys brought up the idea that maybe she cleaned out her trunk for the boyfriend because the boyfriend told her that she, he was leaving his wife and he had belongings with him. And this is why I love hearing your guys' theories because that didn't even cross my mind when I did this case. I was so happy to hear this theory because it kind of all clicked once I heard that. Because clearly... She was cleaning out her trunk for a reason, making room for something, and she was going to see someone who had enough of an impact on her to bring her son over to the neighbors to be watched that night. So I think this is a huge possibility, and this is a brilliant, brilliant theory. So thank you so much for writing that in. 
Now, the next theory is fairly similar. This person said, quote, Hi, my theory is that the truck stop man that Veronica was having an affair with called her that night and told her that his wife had found out about their affair and he was getting kicked out of the house and needed her to come and get him and told her to clear her trunk so he could put his things in it. And when she arrived, she instead was met with him and his wife, and they were both involved in her murder. To me, that explains the amount of overkill because the wife was so furious at her. Love your podcast, end quote. Well, thank you for listening to Killer Instinct. Um, And I definitely agree. I think that with the amount of overkill, this was obviously very, very personal and someone who had a huge vendetta out for Vera. And when you look at who could that possibly be, who could want to hurt her or who would have something out against her, there is really just two people that we know of. There might be more that we are unaware of, but from what we can tell, with the amount of overkill in her murder, it would make sense as to why someone like the wife of the man that she was having an affair with would be so angry. Now, does it justify the murder? Absolutely not. But when you're looking at who could have that much anger towards her, there really is one person that comes to mind, and that's the man that she's having an affair with's wife. Now, the next question, this one's more so of a question that someone wrote in, says, quote, Hi, Savannah. First, I want to say that I love your podcast. And regarding the case, I didn't seem to hear anything about the father of her children. Did she have an ex-husband slash father who was out to get her? Thanks a lot. End quote. Again, thank you for listening. I appreciate it so much, but that is a very good question. Nowhere in any of the research that I did was the father of Vera's children discussed. We don't know if he's even alive. We don't know where he lives. Nothing about him was discussed, but that also is a very good question. And I think authorities most likely looked into it because when you have a case like this, you look at the people closest to the victim and you typically look at spouses ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, ex-girlfriends, things like that. So I do believe that if he is alive, authorities did probably look into him. However, it's interesting because he was never brought up. So if he is still alive, it would be interesting to know what his deal was and where he was that night. Now, just based off of the YouTube comments on the video that I posted and the rest of the emails that I received, it seems very much like we're kind of all under the same assumption, which is that it definitely had something to do with the man that she was having an affair with along with the wife. That seems like the most logical. It seems to make the most sense in looking at theories and motive and who could have wanted to hurt Vera this badly. It seems like we're kind of all on the same page with that, which is really cool to see. Thank you guys so much for sending in your assumptions and theories. I think it's just a great way to continue the conversation on these cases that we cover and not just have it be a one and done type of deal. We talk about it once, we never bring it up again. I think it's really important in these cases, especially the ones that don't necessarily have as much information out there to continue to talk about theories and what could have happened and just continuing to have an ongoing conversation is really really important. So with that being said, thank you so much. Again, you can always email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about this week's case. So we're going to jump right on into it right now. 
So like I said, today we have a very wild case about the murder of Michael Shaver. Michael was 33 years old when he was last seen in 2015. However, he was never even reported missing until 2018. This case is wild and as we continue to go through it, I think you will be just as shocked as I was while researching it. So let's get into it. Now let's talk about Michael Shaver. So unfortunately, there isn't too much of a backstory to go off of. However, I'm going to walk you through what we do now. So Michael was born in January 1982. Like I said, he was a 33-year-old man at the time of his death, and he was living in a place called Lake County, Florida. Now, from what I could tell, Lake County is a pretty big area. It had a population of about 367,000 people in 2019, and it's also pretty close to Orlando, Florida. Now, after Michael graduated from college, he went on to train to work as a commercial pilot. However, he soon after found a different job that he loved even more. Michael worked as a mechanic at Disney World and he absolutely loved his job and it was really what prompted the move to Central Florida. Michael was described by the people who knew him best as a laid-back guy. He stayed in his own lane, he liked to do handyman jobs around his house, he loved his family, and he had two kids who he absolutely adored. While they were living in Central Florida in Lake County, it was Michael, his wife, and their two kids, and they lived in a four-bedroom, three-bathroom home that stood on about five acres, and for a while, things seemed to be going really well for Michael and his family. However, in about 2014 is when things really started to crumble apart. So let's talk about Michael's family and more specifically his wife. So Michael's wife was a woman named Lori Shaver and Lori and Michael didn't have the most healthy relationship. It was very tumultuous, very, very toxic. Police records had shown that Lori and Michael had gotten physically violent with each other in the past and several months before Michael's disappearance, Michael was said to have shown up to work with bruises all over his face, body, and arms. And when asked what happened to him, Michael blamed it on Lori and said that she just got really mad about something and took it out on him. So it definitely looked like the physical violence was going both ways and records also showed that Michael and Lori had a domestic dispute back in 2014 and police were called after Lori struck Michael with a gun over the head. However, Michael actually was the one who ended up getting arrested for this because he was believed to be the one who pulled out the gun on Lori at first. So Lori said that she was simply acting in self-defense. There was also said to be another incident similar to that one where Michael and Lori had gotten into an argument. Michael pulled out his gun again and the two of them wrestled over it for a little bit before Michael ended up hitting Lori across the head with it while she was trying to grab her car keys in order to leave the home 
with both of her children. Now, in total, Lori had reported Michael twice for domestic violence, but ended up dropping both of these charges. And she also filed an order of protection against Michael in September 2014. However, she dropped that 11 days later as well. 2014 was also a tough year because in August, Lori had actually crashed her truck into a tree with her kids in the car. And according to Lori, the reason she crashed was because she was trying to reach down at the bottom of the truck, in the inside the truck at the bottom of it to grab some papers from her purse. However, other people said that the reason that she actually crashed was because she had been drinking and driving. So she was drunk and driving and that is what caused the accident. So Michael and Lori definitely had a toxic relationship. However, they decided to stay together. There were some reports that said that they had taken breaks while still being married. They separated for a little bit and dated other people. However, for the most part, they always came back to each other. That was until the unexpected happened. Now, the last time that Michael was ever seen was on November 8th, 2015. And after that, the timeline gets very blurred. There are a lot of questions, but I'm going to try and explain it as clearly as possible. So on November 7th, 2015, a coworker of Michael's named Frank Merritt said that his family and Michael's family had spent the day together at the Florida Flywheelers tractor show in Fort Meade, Florida. Neighbors of Michael and Lori also remember seeing Michael that day out in his yard doing some handyman work. So he was seen on the 7th. Now at the Flywheelers show, Frank said that Michael and Lori were arguing and they weren't getting along so much so that it caused them to leave the show early. And then on November 8th, Michael was seen at work at his job and a coworker of his named Corey said that he saw Michael clocking out of his job that day and according to Corey, him, Michael, and some other co-workers were in the parking lot of their job after they had all clocked out and when it was time for Michael to leave, he walked towards his car and told everyone, quote, see you Tuesday, end quote, because that's when his next shift was. However, that never ended up happening. Now, on November 8th, when he had gone to the Flywheeler show but ended up leaving early, Frank, the family and co-worker that Michael had gone with, so it was two families, Frank and his family and Michael and his family, Frank had texted Michael after he had left the Flywheeler show early. However, he never received a response. He texted Michael again on the 9th, and according to Frank, he got a text back from Michael this time saying that he had quit his job in order to save his marriage. Now, this was an absolute huge surprise to Frank. He said he was completely not expecting that from Michael, and it seemed very unlike him. Then, according to Michael's boss, he also received a text from Michael saying, quote, I'm having issues at home. I'm in Georgia right now. Just fire me or I'll quit. 
end quote. Now, Michael's boss said that the tone of this message was extremely unlike Michael. And this text came into Michael's boss on November 10th. And then on the next day, November 11th, when co-workers heard the news that Michael had quit, they tried to get in contact with him. However, Michael texted them back saying, quote, I quit. Don't contact me. You can keep my tools end quote. Again, this was all very out of pocket and very out of character for Michael. No one had ever expected it, and the reasoning for it didn't really make sense to a lot of people. No one understood why Michael had to quit his job and why he was so closed off to everyone after he said that he had quit. Now, not only did Michael's co-workers never see him again after this interaction, no one in general ever saw Michael again. His family didn't see him, his kids didn't see him, his friends didn't see him. No one knew where he was. He was there one day and gone the next. Now, according to Michael's family and friends, they had all been told by Lori that Michael had left his family and quit his job to go off and start a new life in Georgia. She had told everyone that Michael was supposed to drive home from work that day on November 8th. However, he never made it home and then learned from him later on that he had left her. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So that was the story that Lori told everyone. However, people who knew Michael thought that this was just really strange because Michael was not the type of guy to just up and leave his kids. But because of what happened after Michael disappeared, people thought that maybe they just didn't know who Michael really was. Because after Michael disappeared, one of the reasons that people didn't really question this too much was because Michael was still active on social media. But still, even though he was active on social media and sending back text messages, it was the contents of those text messages that still left his closest family and friends unsure. When Michael would respond to his family and friends, he would tell them that he was fine, but just wanted to be left alone and never contacted again. Along with this, there were some other red flags as well, such as the fact that Michael's driver's license and pilot's license had both expired, however, he had not renewed them, and he also did not respond to a civil suit from a credit card company. So not only was he not wanting to be contacted by his family and friends anymore, he was completely negating all responsibilities that he had, which 
which again was just unlike him. It was unlike his character to do that. But regardless, even though Michael was gone, no one had reported him missing because there wasn't enough evidence that something was wrong and that he was in danger. Because if you think about it, there was no proof. Lori said that he went off and started a new life, he was responding back to people, and he was on social media, and he's a 33-year-old man, so if he did want to go off and start a new life, he very well could have. So now we move on to 2016, just a couple months after Michael was last seen. And at some point in the early summer of 2016, Lori actually began a new relationship. She started dating a man named Travis filmer. Now, Travis worked as a student life coordinator at a church called the Real Life Christian Church, and their relationship moved fairly quickly once it had started. And along with their fast-paced relationship, people around Lori noticed that once she started dating Travis, her behavior became more and more bizarre. She started selling a lot of possessions that belonged to Michael that he had left behind after he had gone and started off this new life. And this is something to note too, even though he left to go start a new life, he basically left everything that he had owned behind at the house that he had shared with Lori. So Lori responded by selling his belongings, including his guns and his aircraft mechanic tools. Along with that, she ended up draining his bank account completely, as well as making fraudulent loan deposits in his name. And it was after she started dating Travis that her story started to vary about what happened to Michael and where Michael went. It depended on who she was talking to, what her answer would be. Before she started dating Travis, she had a very strict story. Michael left her to start a new life in Georgia. However, now she would tell some people that he was either in New York, and then she would tell some people that he moved to California. And she went as far as telling Travis's mother, so her new boyfriend's mother, that Michael was a pilot and was traveling all the time, and that's why he was never home to see the kids. She also told her supervisor at work that Michael was in jail for not paying child support. So Lori's story, she couldn't stick to one. She chose a million different stories, and it just depended on who she was talking to, what story they would be told. Now, to make matters even weirder, in September of 2015, so before Michael even went missing, Lori was dating another man who was also married. Now, this man is assumed to not be Travis because remember, Travis said that they met in the summer of 2016. But remember, like I said, also Michael and Lori would sometimes take time to separate from each other even though they were still married and still living under the same house. They would separate and date other people but always come back to each other. This very well could have been one of these times. But regardless, Lori actually went out of her way to pose as Michael and send flowers to the man that Lori was dating at the time's wife. So Lori is dating a married man. Lori then goes out of her way to send flowers to this man that she's dating's wife and tried to pose as Michael in doing so. Now, the reason it was discovered that it was actually Lori doing this was because the flowers were paid using Lori's bank account. And it was the note that came with the flowers that were the most concerning. It said, quote, roses are red, violets are blue, my wife is a whore and your husband is too. 
check your Facebook messages. We need to talk, Mike, end quote. If that doesn't just give you the most uncomfortable feeling, I don't know what will. Regardless of who sends the flowers, that is such an uncomfortable message to send to someone. It seems very aggressive and almost threatening. It's just, it's very, very unsettling. Then on April 20th, 2016, a friend of Michael's, who is also named Michael, so it can kind of get a little confusing, he had reached out to Michael, Michael Shaver, to see if he was doing good and to catch up on him and his new life that he had started because at this point, it had been a couple months since Michael had moved to Georgia. And in regards to the message that he received back, Michael, the friend, put on Facebook and said, quote, I'll add, I got a message from Mike in April 2016. He said, quote, I'm doing good, okay? Just don't feel like talking to anyone now. Dealing with a lot of shit right now, end quote. Friend Michael, so the friend of Michael Shaver, went on to say, quote, there wasn't a lot Mike wouldn't talk to me about. That message is also a bit more aggressive than he usually ever was, even when he was stressed. He was also funny on how sentences would flow, so the redundancy of the message isn't like Mike's normal structure. This only came after I was pressing him hard to respond to me, which is also unlike him, end quote. So this shows that Michael's friends were starting to catch along to the fact that something just seemed off. Something did not seem right here. Now, throughout all of this going on with her husband leaving her, her being left with her two kids and a house and all of that, Lori seemed to be doing relatively well. Like we said, she was selling Michael's things, trying to make some money off of them. She had a new relationship. She overall seemed very unbothered. So unbothered that after less than a year of meeting Travis, so after less than a year of the two of them dating, Lori actually remarried Travis in 2017. And this was despite any divorce papers ever being filed for Michael. Lori and her boyfriend Travis got married in the backyard of Lori's home that she used to live in with Michael. And then on June 19th, 2017, it was announced that Travis and Lori were actually expecting their first child together and that the baby was due the next year in February. As far as Michael's activity on social media, on November 14th, 2017, Michael's Facebook was updated and he posted a photo of a gun onto his Facebook page. And then on January 2nd, 2018, Michael's Facebook was updated again and it showed a group of friends at a bar drinking and he was not in the picture. It just made it seem like he had taken the picture and uploaded it to his account. However, someone had had realized that this picture was actually originated from just a random person's Instagram account. So this was never a picture that Michael had taken himself. Again, it just adds along to the inconsistencies and weirdness of this entire story. So now let's move on to the straw that really broke the camel's back and the straw that got authorities involved ultimately, because you might be sitting here wondering, 
what is going on? Are authorities ever going to get involved? And what? when is this going to happen? So one of Michael's friends named Scott Amatuccio, which I apologize if I am butchering that name, Scott had gotten into contact with Michael's sister. And the two of them had talked about how no one had physically seen Michael in years. They had texted with him, they saw his updates on his Facebook account, but no one had physically seen Michael. Then, shortly after this conversation with the sister, an ex-girlfriend of Michael's had actually gone over to the house that he had shared with Lori. Now, it isn't really clear why she went over there or what the purpose was. However, when she went over there, she saw that Michael's personal belongings, including his cell phone, and his wallet were both at the house. However, Michael was not there. Now, after she left the house, the ex-girlfriend got in contact with that same friend, Scott, to tell him that something just didn't sit right. Because why would Michael's belongings be at Lori's house when Michael hadn't been there in years? So once Scott heard this, this is when he decided to get authorities involved. He said, quote, I put all these little pieces together and this isn't right at all. That's what triggered me to call the authorities. Mike isn't the one to go and get up and leave his kids one day, like Lori claimed." End quote. So Scott got into contact with authorities and asked them to do a welfare check on Michael Shaver. And since Michael's address was still registered to the house that he and Lori lived in together, that is the house that authorities went to. Now, before authorities showed up at the house, Scott did tell authorities the whole story of him going to Georgia and starting this new life, but things seemed weird. No one had seen him. He explained the whole story to them before the authorities went over there. So authorities arrived at the house on February 16th, 2018, which mind you, let's just lay out the timeline real quick for a second. Michael went missing in 2015 and it took until 2018 for police to be called and sent over to the house. Two and a half years of him being gone for police to be called. It's crazy. However, nonetheless, authorities went over to the home and were greeted at the door by Lori. So Lori was the one who answered the door and when answering, authorities said that she was cooperative at first. She allowed police to come inside, allowed them to look around. And Lori also told authorities that the last time that she saw Michael was in 2015 after she had filed a domestic dispute against him. And then he was supposed to come home after work one day and he just never showed up and he went on to start a new life elsewhere, leaving her and her kids behind. Authorities said that, quote, upon speaking with Lori for a few minutes, the conversation ended up making its way outside the home, at which time Lori stopped being cooperative and she requested an attorney, end quote. While authorities were outside with Lori when this conversation made its way outside, authorities had asked Lori if they could bring in cadaver dogs to sniff out the property. And this is when authorities said that Lori stopped being cooperative and said that she wanted a lawyer and she was going to call her attorney and that the authorities needed to leave. So because they couldn't continue the search without a warrant, authorities were required to leave the property. However, they did end up getting a warrant and coming back. It was on March 9th, 2018, that authorities went back to Lori's property with cadaver dogs, this time with the search warrant. 
When they arrived on the property, the dogs immediately went to the back of the house and started sniffing out an area that was covered by a concrete slab. Now, according to the deputy in regards to the slab, he said, quote, upon walking up to the concrete slab, a three foot by six foot depression was noticed immediately. The depression appeared to have a browning discoloration and resembled a shallow grave beneath the slab. Another detective said, quote, it was not smooth at all. You can almost make out the shape of the body and the direction it was laying, end quote. Now, when Lori was asked about this concrete slab, she said that it used to be a part of a chicken coop. However, they got rid of the chickens and were planning on digging out the area to create a pond. Now, no one was buying the story because that doesn't make any sense. So authorities ended up digging up this concrete slab. They had a fire pit on top of the concrete slab. So they took the fire pit off and dug up the slab. And that is when they discovered a human upper arm bone. Forensic anthropologists were at the scene and they were able to help identify that the bones were in fact human remains. On March 10th, the next day, the search continued and there were additional remains discovered as well as articles of clothing in the same areas. Now, it ended up taking months for these remains to be identified. However, on June 15th, 2018, the remains were positively identified to belong to Michael Shaver. And the reason they were able to figure it out is because they matched Michael's DNA to his father's. So now authorities had found Michael's remains on the property that Lori lived at with Travis. The property she'd been sharing with her new husband and the one that she lived at with Michael before he had quote unquote gone missing. All of these years and Lori knew exactly where he was the entire time. Now also this concrete slab, what's absolutely twisted about this case is that this concrete slab is where Lori and Travis stood on top of while they were getting married. Like I said, their ceremony was held in the backyard and they stood on top of the concrete slab that Michael's body was encased in while they were getting married. And not only that, after they had already gotten married, the two of them had carved their initials into the concrete as well. It's just so, it's so bizarre. It's so, so bizarre. Now, when it comes to Travis, he said, and you guys, I'm so interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. Now, Travis said that he was under the impression that Lori and Michael did get a divorce and that the papers could be found in the court system. However, they just never were. Now, according to Travis, he also said that in regards to when Lori would talk about Michael, he said that Lori told him, quote, it's not that he's missing. He's no longer walking this earth, end quote. Travis also said that Lori had told him that there was a body on the property, however, didn't disclose who the body belonged to. So this is where I ask you guys the question of, do you think that Travis knew about Michael from the very beginning? Do you think that they were dating prior to him being murdered and Travis could have even taken part of it? He said that he was aware that there was a body on the property. Do you think he knew it was Michael's? I will say, 
it would be extremely strange and concerning if someone told you there was a body on their property that you were living at, and if this woman was your wife and she told you there was a body on the property and you just brushed it off, didn't blink twice, didn't think about it. So because of that, that leads me to believe he definitely knew more about this than he's saying. Now, crazy enough, even though Michael's body was discovered two years ago, Lori was actually just arrested, not even a month ago for this. She was arrested on September 17th, 2020, and charged with second-degree murder and accessory after the fact to second-degree homicide, and she is currently being held with no bond. Now, when it comes to cause of death or motive, that has not been released yet. We are unaware of how Michael was killed or why Lori would kill him at all. I think when thinking of motive, she will most likely either use the self-defense card because they had gotten into so many physical altercations before this, so to say that it was self-defense wouldn't seem so far off. However, if it was self-defense, I find it strange that she would go to the extent of almost being just so twisted and evil about it all to stand on his body while you're getting remarried and carve your initials into the concrete slab that he is in. It seems more personal. Now, as of right now, Lori has not entered a plea to the two charges she faces, and her lawyers have not made any comment yet about what is to come. When Lori's lawyer was reached out for a comment back in August before her arrest, he said, quote, she doesn't know who did this crime or how it happened. Michael had a lot of enemies, and he was not liked by a lot of people. So maybe... Lori will not claim guilty at all to this, and she will stick to the fact that she doesn't know anything about it and had nothing to do with it, but I personally think that will be very quickly proved untrue, and it just doesn't seem likely whatsoever. How did that concrete slab get there? Like, and you just, you just didn't know about it? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So, let me know what you guys think. This one is a crazy one, and I'm really interested in following up on this with you guys and following the, so, the trial that's soon to come if she pleads not guilty. Let me know what you guys think about Travis and that whole situation. I'm really, really curious um, to hear what you guys have to say. Weirdly enough, this case kind of reminds me, in a way, of the Lori Vallow case. Not in the same way of the murdering of her children because Lori here didn't do that. However, Lori Shaver meets a man who is a diehard, very religious man, diehard Christian. It just seems very kind of similar. There's eerie similarities in both cases to me. This That's just what I thought when I was doing my research on this, but I'm interested to see what you guys have to say. So you can email me in all your thoughts, theories, questions, comments, suggestions, all of it at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct this week. Again, if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. We make weekly episodes every single Wednesday here on Killer Instinct, and you're not going to want to miss it. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. I will be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, have a great rest of your week and stay safe.